Welcome to the podcast for the Northwest Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Atlanta. Our minister is the Reverend Terry Davis, and each week we'll record audio of the sermon and reflections from members of the congregation from the pulpit at our home in the woods. Thank you for joining us. You can visit us in person at 1025 Mount Vernon Highway Northwest in Sandy Springs or on the web at nwuuc.org. March 13th, 2016. Today's sermon is Brave, Brave, Brave by Reverend Terry Davis. Yesterday morning, as I was eating my bowl of grape nuts and scanning the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my heart sank. The headline, Campus Carry Gun Bill Goes to Governor, blared its dismal news. And beneath that headline, there was a photograph of several Georgia state senators with their arms raised to the sky voting in favor of House Bill 859, which would legalize concealed firearms at all public state colleges. That bill now goes to the desk of Governor Nathan Deal, who is expected to sign it into law. The AJC reported that a two-hour debate in the Senate chamber took place before the bill's passage. Dozens of students and professors and parents testified against the bill. Letters opposing the measure were distributed in the chamber, including one from the bishops of the Episcopal Church in Georgia. Negative consequences were outlined, including that the state is likely to incur millions of dollars in additional costs as campuses face potential insurance premium hikes and look to shore up security. Well, despite these protests, the AJC noted that the outcome was never in question. We're up against a powerful gun lobby funded by the firearms industry, said State Senator Nan Orock, who voted against the bill. Senator Orock, who is also a Unitarian Universalist, noted that a 2014 poll by the AJC showed that 78% of Georgians opposed allowing guns on the state's college campuses. Yet despite public opinion, she said a tiny contingent was given far too much latitude in the General Assembly to influence policy. And so HB 859 passed on Friday under the gold dome of our Georgia State Capitol, a building the AJC also reported where it remains illegal to carry a concealed firearm. While I was discouraged by this misguided majority decision of our lawmakers as I read the article, I also noted a few, a few inspiring bright spots. For instance, I read that a lone state senator decided to break away from his political party and vote against the bill. 
And so I sent Senator Fran Millar of Dunwoody a thank you note for that, and I hope you will too. I also read that a lone protester inside the state capitol on Friday tried to display a sign protesting the bill, and even though other groups regularly bring signs into the building, she was singled out and arrested. And so I thanked Dr. Amy Donahue of Kennesaw State University for that. She was the protester, and I hope you will too. And I also recalled that Governor Deal did the right thing just a week earlier and came out against the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a bill that will permit discrimination of LGBT Georgians and others in the name of religious protection. Several clergy members gathered downtown on Tuesday afternoon for a press conference to thank him for that. And our Northwest members, Helen Borland and Jay Kiskell, actually filmed that. And you can look at it on our website if you would like. And so now I'm wondering whether our governor might do the right thing again and veto this campus carry gun bill. I can hope. And we can all act. On Monday, let's call him. Let's call him up and tell him not to sign it. 404, 404, it's real easy to remember, 656-1776, 404-656-1776, let's call him and tell him not to sign it, okay, okay, we can hope. In thinking about all these things and reflecting on this morning's reading, it seems that to go up against power and authority, we have no choice but to be brave. To risk the seeming security of silence and to speak up, we must be brave. To act on our truth, knowing that we will likely experience disapproval, estrangement, and even violent reactions from others, we must be brave. <laughs> to dismantle persistent and systemic oppression, to help set suffering people free, to create a society that functions on fairness, not fear, we must be brave, brave, brave. This is the example and the invitation that death row inmate and attorney activist Brian Stevenson is offering to us. And this call to be brave is one that we must answer if we're to serve one another and live out the values of our faith. As we conclude our second Sunday sermon series today on Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, as we consider the history of racial inequality and economic injustice that has led to the incarceration of African-American men at six times the rate of whites. As we think about the fact that for every 10 people executed in our country, one innocent person on death row has been identified and exonerated. As we recognize that we have failed our children by creating a nation that justifies locking up 3,000 of them for life, some as young as 13 years old, without the possibility of parole. 
As we examine all of these things, one question keeps popping up in my mind and maybe in yours too. And that is, what can I do about it? Or rather, what should I do about it? Well, my message to you this morning is this. If we truly care about ending the racial injustice that pervades our criminal justice system, if we care about fair and humane treatment of all prisoners, if we want to abolish the death penalty, if we want to end the policies and practices that push our most at-risk children out of classrooms and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems, if we want to give ex-inmates real opportunities to rejoin society and rehabilitate their lives, then we're going to need to learn the truth about oppression. And we're going to need to be brave. What does being brave mean? For me, it will likely mean re-examining and rearranging my priorities. It will probably mean setting aside long and comfortable relationships and initiating new and uncertain ones. It will certainly mean taking some action, and it will definitely mean being uncomfortable. I tell you that all of these things, all of those things I just mentioned, can be incredibly difficult for me to do. And I deeply admire people like Brian Stevenson, who have dedicated their lives to exposing the stubbornness of racism and oppression and doing all they can to change it. If you've read Stevenson's book, you know that he has sacrificed his time, money, personal relationships, and other things that many of us value in life in service of his mission to challenge and eventually end the death penalty and win justice for death row inmates and incarcerated children. His list of goals even made Rosa Parks' head spin, and she told him, ooh, honey, that's all going to make you tired, tired, tired. But really, I ask myself, what else is there? What else is there? What is the point of my life? Can I truly be happy knowing that others are suffering and I'm not doing anything to try and change it? And if I claim to be a caring human being, let alone a Unitarian Universalist who's worth her salt, doesn't this require that I do something? Especially when asked by a person like Brian Stevenson who seems to be doing everything. I'm reminded of the words I've quoted here before of Unitarian Universalist minister, Reverend Edward Everett Hale. He writes, I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. So where do I begin? Where can we begin? What is the something that each of us can do to address this issue? 
Well, Jessica Henry, who's an associate professor of justice studies at Montclair State University and a former public defender, she offers 10 suggestions on how we can fix the criminal justice system. And I'm going to share these with you, and I want you to think about them, and we're going to talk more about them after the service today. First, she says that we must return to community policing. Professor Henry says that if the police personally know the folks they are serving, then they get a sense of who lives in the neighborhood, who is dealing drugs, and who is going to school. With knowledge, she says, comes trust. With knowledge, police are better able to make informed life and death split-second decisions. Second, we must stop the use of solitary confinement in prisons, particularly for juveniles in detention facilities. Henry notes that solitary confinement has become a widespread prison management tool where people are held in extreme isolation, sometimes for years or decades. And Brian Stevenson's book affirms this. Henry argues that this method does more harm than good as it inflicts psychological and physical damage. It's fundamentally inhumane, extremely costly, and contrary to the public good. And we have to stop it. The next thing we can do, Henry says, is to reduce violence in prison by improving prison accountability and leadership. Henry says that thousands of prisoners, including those who are incarcerated for nonviolent crimes, become the victims of sexual assault and other violent attacks while serving prison sentences. When they're released and re-enter society, they're traumatized and maladjusted. And she says, if you want to reduce high rates of recidivism, then make prisons safer and hold administrators accountable for the devastating violence that occurs under their watch. Another thing we can do is we can support alternatives to arrest and incarceration programs. Henry urges us to support initiatives such as after-school programs, mental health centers, and drug treatment options. These programs require funding and are costly in the short term, Henry says, but offer a safer and healthier community in the long run than what can be achieved by over-utilizing our incarceration system. Next, she says, we can support public defender offices and other organizations that fight for equality in the criminal justice system. Public defenders serve poor people accused of crimes, and as both Jessica Henry and Brian Stevenson have pointed out, there are way more people of color who need attorneys than there are attorneys to do the job. A good public defender is the best defense against any governmental overreaching that may occur in the system, says Henry. Public defender offices need financial support to address today's indigent defense crisis. In addition to supporting our public defender offices, we can support the passage of laws that reduce overly harsh sentences. That's another thing we can do. 
Henry points out that people are serving life sentences for nonviolent drug offenses or for certain felonies under habitual offender laws, and that this is costing the criminal justice system a lot of money. And Stevenson confirms that these sentences are disproportionately served to the poor and people of color. Henry, Stevenson, and other justice advocates suggest that we support bills that would act to reduce these overly harsh sentences. Another thing we can do, says Henry and Brian Stevenson, is that we must work to end the death penalty. Stevenson's work and his stories in Just Mercy in particular confirm that the death penalty is racist, it's barbaric, and it assumes an error-free judicial process, which we know is impossible in any human endeavor. The death penalty offers no rehabilitation and no deterrent. And in addition, statistics confirm that death penalty cases cost millions more than non-capital cases ending in a life sentence. Stevenson says that we should be embarrassed. We should be embarrassed as a nation for not ending it, and I agree. Next, Henry says that we should hold prosecutors and police responsible for deliberate misconduct. She writes, police and prosecutors who deliberately engage in misconduct are rarely held liable for their actions. And I'm talking about serious misconduct that lands innocent people in jail, such as hiding or destroying evidence that could clear the accused of charges or fabricating evidence to make a defendant appear guilty or relying on testimony that is known to be false or obtaining and then using coerced confessions. Henry says that all of this needs to change and suggests a policy of liability for deliberate misconduct as a way to help. In addition to holding those responsible for deliberate misconduct, Henry says that we must hold our states responsible for mistakenly sending an innocent person to prison. She says this means that we must require all states to provide compensation to the exonerated. She writes, when the criminal justice system makes a grievous mistake by sending an innocent person to prison, the state has a moral and ethical responsibility to make amends by providing adequate financial support, counseling, educational, and job training, and housing. Georgia is one of 20 states that provides no compensation to the wrongly convicted. We can tell our lawmakers that we want to do better than that. And then finally, but most importantly, Henry says that we must pay attention to and speak out about injustice whenever we see it. Henry argues that the criminal justice system will only reform when people speak with unified conviction about a more just and equitable system. When we are brave and when we speak our truth in large numbers, Henry says that policymakers will have no choice but to respond. Well, these are a lot of valuable suggestions that we're getting from Jessica Henry. And I imagine they can feel a bit overwhelming. It felt overwhelming to me as I was reading them all. 
My hope is that during our second hour discussion today, we can break things down a little bit and discover the one something that each of us can do to join her, to join Brian Stevenson, and other activists in the journey toward reform and true justice. My hope is that if we can look at this closely and with honesty, we'll find our something. And perhaps we'll also find that our ability to be brave, 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 simply starts with our willingness to try. May it be so for you and for me. 